Hello and welcome back to F1 in Review. It's been only a matter of days since the Hungarian Grand Prix took place and it resulted in Lewis Hamilton yet again winning the race. I'm joined as ever by Tristan, Liv and Angus and we're here to dissect and discuss the various talking points of this race. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's gone into base for Stafford and under braking Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish. Adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. So the first topic of conversation, we're going to the back of the grid this time, talking about the teams um, which could full victim to becoming last, being the holders of the wooden spoon, so to speak. Uh, a bit of context, back in 2019, it was Williams who scored uh, just the one point. It was then Haas in ninth place with 28 points and Alfa Romeo with 57. And currently, it's looking pretty much exactly the same in terms of order. Williams are last with zero points. Haas are ninth with one point, although I think it should be two. We'll talk about that later. And Alfa Romeo with two points as it stands after three races. Um, currently, it's a very mixed picture, whether you look at this in terms of uh, qualifying times compared to the actual race finishes. So so for context, we're seeing um, Alfa Romeo, we talked about this last episode, having the Ferrari engine. This has seen them gain um, close to half a second if we're comparing their best time of 2019, which was a 10th place finish in qualifying with Kimi Raikkonen. Uh, this was a time of 1 minute 16 seconds, uh, 0.041. Uh, this time it was Antonio Giovinazzi who finished in 19th place with 1 minute 16.506. Uh, and in the race, it didn't get much better. Their best finish was 15th. So a poor qualifying time, a poor qualifying record, and they didn't get much better in the race. Going on to Williams now, it's a very mixed picture. Um, we're seeing in terms of qualifying, George Russell has once again got a 12th place. This being a vast improvement, an improvement of roughly 1.4 seconds from the 2019 uh, time he got, which was 1 minute 17.031, uh, that being 16th place. And this time, it was 1 minute 15.698, so a huge improvement, although in the race, the highest that Williams car finished was a measly 18th. And finally, going on to Haas, we'll talk about this more, particularly the race. Um, but as alluded to last time, uh, they've gotten slower, and this time it is by um, uh, point one four of a second so this goes from one minute 16.013 and now this goes for kevin magnuson who finished in 16th place uh and he got a time of one minute 16.152 so from ninth to 16th not great but the highest finish they got was ninth place um we know what the score is in terms of the standings we know how they were finished um, what do we think about the battle for the wooden spoon in the last place? Do we think there's going to be a repeat of the order? Or do you think perhaps Williams could float a little higher? Haas could go lower? Alfa Romeo could drop like a stone? What are your thoughts? I think any Ferrari-powered team is going to really struggle at the moment not to be off the bottom just because of the lack of power that the, the engine's providing them. Williams is an odd case, therefore, because... They've got a fantastic engine, but they've been on the back foot for too long. One of the reasons why we cite 
Mercedes as being so dominant is because they were on the dominant foot from the start, which means every year it's an incremental improvement. If you imagine now the Williams has been doing so poorly for such a long time, they have to then pick themselves up and climb far higher than other teams perhaps uh, will be. I do think there is some hope for Williams, mainly because of their qualifying pace. Yes, in the race, it's not been going so well for them, but we definitely know that Russell and Latifi can push the cars uh, through the, the mid-pack. And Williams has said that there is a powerful upgrade um, coming for the British Grand Prix. And so hopefully that will really exploit some more performance out of the engine that they've got from Mercedes and bring them back up the standings. So to be honest, I think Williams isn't going to come last this year because it's got such a good uh, performance package from Mercedes and its upgrades are coming. And I think that Haas and... Alfa Romeo are going to be sort of fighting to, to stay off the bottom if they can. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say as well, if I look back to the week before last, um, following the double header, I would have said, you know, 100% Williams will be down at the bottom. And I, I, again, I agree they, they probably will. But I do see, especially the weekend just gone, that, that power that they do have. And, I, and as you say, if they do bring a new strategy and a new power to the British Grand Prix, I just think we could expect some good things from them. And I did find Alfa Romeo's performance reasonably disappointing um, um, especially that in qualifying but then the experience of those like you know Kimi Raikkonen really just enabled them to secure some decent points in the end um, perhaps the experience that George Russell and Nicholas Tiki don't have at Williams but when we look at pace and when we look at qualifying it's actually going to be closer this year for the wooden spoon than it has been in the past. I would also say that Williams, I'd say, would probably come last. Um, I think the main factor would be in experience um, because you've probably got three quite evenly matched cars there between the Alfa Romeo, the Haas and the Williams. But if you're talking about who's actually going to get the job done on race day, you st- I, I would still have to back the Haas and the Alfa Romeo drivers. I know that, for example, at Williams, George Russell is coming on leaps and bounds. Um, Doing some brilliant performances. I mean, his qualify being able to qualify twelfth in the dry uh, this last weekend was absolutely phenomenal. Ahead of a Red Bull as well. I know Alex Albon had his issues, but it was still a phenomenal performance from uh, from George Russell. Um, but if you look at the fact that during the race, um, if we look at the example of Williams, uh, George Russell made a really good start. Uh, sorry, made a really poor start uh, from twelfth on the grid. Absolute shocker and was down to like 18th on the first lap. Nicholas Atifi, on the other hand, had an absolute blinder, went from 15th into the points in 10th, but then got released by his pit crew, uh, got a puncture and dropped all the way down to 19th before having a couple of spins later on in the race. So you'd have to say that shows that Williams drivers maybe have some sort of race like gaps in their racecraft to maybe um maybe they have to improve upon. Whilst if you look at the example of of Haas, they really you have to say took advantage of what they could. Um coming in is something which will be discussed later a uh, little spoiler is that a spoiler i don't know and that leads us nicely onto our second topic penalties was it a penalty was it not a penalty if you're gene Haas and anyone who has any association with that team you're going to be absolutely fuming in so far that kevin magnuson and roman grosjean were both hit with 10 second time penalties for allegedly uh, having the team aid their drivers over the radio on the formation lap. So Tristan, I believe you're going to be taking even deeper look at what happened on Sunday. Just to, just getting a feel of the Hungarian Grand Prix, it, it clearly caused a lot of drama. Firstly, Verstappen crashed his car after losing traction on the formation lap and sliding into the barriers, which meant the Red Bull engineers had to fix his suspension on the grid. 
Magnussen and Grosjean made the call to their teams to change the intermediate tyres designed to handle damp conditions and instead they want to start on slicks. Um, Red Bull also uh, dried the track around Albon in order to give him a good start. And then when we actually finally got going, we had a jump start from Bottas, let out the clutch early, causing him to move forward quickly before he then slammed on the brakes, costing him his excellent start and then ultimately costing him second place. Moving on to the penalties given to each of the drivers, Bottas had no penalty. One of the reasons for this is that a jump start is only logged if a sensor on the track is triggered. Now, Given that he slammed on the brakes, he didn't quite manage to trigger it, meaning that although there was a visual jump start, the official jump start sensor didn't log it. Furthermore, many have decided that because he lost a massive amount of time at the start of the race and second place, that was enough of itself a penalty. Now, Verstappen was given no penalty either. The damage to his car was mostly on the suspension, specifically the push-pull rods, and the engineers were able to fix the car with about 25 seconds to go. It's quite difficult to know whether or not Red Bull were in breach of the Park Ferme rules. Now, the reason for this is because under Park Ferme rules, no significant parts of the car are allowed to be changed. However, you are allowed to replace parts with identically specced parts if a car gets damaged. So given the caveats to the Park Famer rules, I don't necessarily think we can complain about that. Now, Albon, no penalty was given either. Now, I'd be interested to know whether or not you think this is cheating, as technically, the engineers are modifying the location surrounding the car in order to improve the start of the race for Albon. Equally, drying the track might not have made much of a difference, given that we know many of the good starts to Formula 1 races are mostly because of good clutch control from the driver. Now, we have controversially come to Haas, and this is the moment that caused for the issue for Haas. Uh, we've done the wrong thing. It's already a dry line. Understood, Kevin, understood. Okay, Kevin, I think we'll box now. Box now. Yeah, I agree. For dry, yeah? For dry. So as we hear, Magnussen comes onto the radio telling the team that they have the wrong tyre. The team tell him to box and they confirm that they are boxing for dry tyres. Then they start him from the pit lane. Now the issue here is that these messages are in breach of Article 27.1 from the F1 sporting regulations, which essentially state that drivers have to be unaided during the formation lap. Now what's odd about this case is Technically speaking, it was Magnussen that instigated the call and therefore helped the team. However, the team came back and told him to box. The rules therefore imply that the thing that Haas did wrong is talk to each other. Magnussen could have said, I'm coming in to change the dry tyres, entered the pit, had his tyres changed and then left again. And it wouldn't have been breached in the regulations because it has to be unaided over the radio. But of course, that would also be rather silly and perhaps also in breach of other regulations when it comes to entering the pit lane safely. So consequently, both Grosjean, who did the same thing as Magnussen, and Magnussen got 10 second penalties, causing Magnussen to go from 9th to 10th and Grosjean losing 15th to 16th. So given that within the race, we had a whole load of ambiguities regarding the rules, including a jump start that wasn't punished, do we think that the FIA made a mistake punishing Haas with a rule that many are calling obsolete, 
or were the stewards correct in upholding the rules given that you could argue that the team did help the driver by telling him to box personally i think that this is an outdated rule it comes from an era five to ten years ago when they were trying to limit conversations between the race engineers and the drivers themselves and given that so many other things happened over the in this race and the previous one for example the ricardo and stroll incident not being penalized i feel that this is a little bit petty and perhaps i will have a natural bias here because i always want the team to who's at the back to do well and has got a blinding start thanks to this call but to be honest i think this sort of punishment gives a bad name to the stewards because there are so many more important things to take into account. Yeah, Tristan, I completely agree there. It does seem very unfair and it does seem like the safest option that they had. And to be honest, not just safe, but pretty genius. Like Tom said a minute ago, you know, they made a really great strategic decision at the time. I mean, okay, we found out later it's gone. It's to do with the breach of the rules. But at the time, I could not believe the genius of, of Haas and the team and in general and how well they'd done. And obviously, that's one point they were third and fourth in the entire race when starting from the pit lane like that was some great teamwork um by the engineers and by the drivers but i do understand that the fact that even though maybe it shouldn't be a rule because it is a rule you do have to stick with it for the precedent but yes maybe it shouldn't be a rule anymore um but i think it would have been wrong for them to ignore it because then it will start setting the idea in other teams mind that oh well you know i can start to make be a little bit more flexible with the rules if it's gonna um just be let off by by the um stewards with the Haas uh decisions that they made i think that yes the rules in place but i think that those kind of like off off the cuff strategic decisions they should be encouraged in formula one whether it's the driver initiating or the team or the engineers initiating i think those kind of things should be encouraged you'd love to see uh, dramatic strategy calls that flip the results around but put uh, slower cars in higher places than they they usually are think um, not just this example but also think uh, the racing point last year in Germany Lance Stroll was down in about 15th place they gambled to, uh, took the option of going on to slicks earlier um, and that genius call put them for about 15-20 seconds in the lead of the race um, so I think calls like that should be encouraged I think yes the rule is in place for now but I'd say that maybe the rules should be looked at and the fact that it came down to a certain method of communication and the fact that it was done that way for there to be a punishment, um, at the end of the day, it's cost Haas an extra point. We know that in Formula One, there are quite a lot of uh, manufactured points within a race that will cause drama. Tyres, for example, are designed in Formula One to fall off at a certain point. In fact, that was quite prominent. In this, uh, in the race we just had, with Hamilton, for example, wanting to go onto the soft tyres with a few laps remaining, and his engineer telling him not to for a couple more laps, just in case they fell off the wall or fell off quicker. Do you think that the stewards should, in cases like these, ignore the rules to some extent and have the ability to to not punish these sort of inspired moments in order to put more excitement into the race? I think ultimately. The FIA's decision recently and whether they're going to sort of religiously and dogmatically stick to the rules down to the absolute article is really a watershed sort of crossroad moment to the sport in general. The sport, in my opinion, is going to decide and needs to decide what it's about. 
whether it's a, a gentleman's club for the European manufacturers and Red Bull, who are sponsored by an, an Austrian um, caffeinated drinks company, or whether it's for, for everybody. Because I see that if this had happened for Ferrari or Mercedes or Red Bull, you would not have seen this penalty enacted to one of the big boys because they're too big to fail and they bring too much commercial uh, value to the sport. I mean, Ferrari, many people say, are the sport. I mean, here's an example. So back in 2010, the German Grand Prix, there was a controversy regarding the team orders given there between the drivers of Felipe Massa and... Um, uh, Fernando Alonso, someone we'll talk about later. This resulted in Felipe Massa moving to one side, resulted in Alonso taking the win, and the message given was, Felipe, Fernando is faster than you, do you understand? So while it's clear this was a team order, the FIA saw this and so far they punished Ferrari with um, um, $100,000, they allowed the result to go through, they allowed Alonso to win, and they allowed the results to stand. Without being too melodramatic, I think this point, this singular point, looking at how close it is down the bottom, could determine whether you see Haas F1 in uh, 2021 Formula 1 Championship next year. Because if they finish 10th, let's say, or if they finish 9th or 8th, that could be the difference between Gene Haas saying, okay, I'll give it another go, or I won't give it another go. So by penalising these teams... Yet a historic example we're seeing with longer term decisions, such as the the DAS um, automation, which has been banned in 2021, but um, has been allowed for this Mercedes car. Looking at this example in 2010, where the points were allowed to stand and team orders were legalised again for Ferrari, there's a real danger that if you're a small company which has no uh, legal or integral connection to a European manufacturing uh, team or car producer, then what's the point entering the sport at all? And I think really Formula One has to be more flexible to allow more people to join and have a damn crack of the whip. Um, so moving now on to the third topic, um, Angus, you're going to be looking at the battle between Pierre Gasly and Alexander Albon. Two drivers who have had 12 races with Red Bull. Been doing a bit of comparative work, I hear. What have you found? We're at a point now, it's, it sort of fits quite nicely, this podcast, that we can I can do this bit about Albon and Gasly because since the start of 2019, there have been 24 races in Formula 1. And that means there's been 12 races where um, Red Bull, or there's been 24 races for Red Bull to try and solve the conundrum of who to be Max Verstappen's teammate. And the reason I say it fits nicely is because there's now been 12 races, the first 12 races of 2019, where Gasly was, Pierre Gasly was Max Verstappen's teammate, and 12 races since where Alex Albon has been Max Verstappen's teammate. So I'm able to do a nice little comparison um, and try and solve Red Bull's headache for them. First, first of all, we compare Pierre Gasly. He came in at the start of the 2019 season, did, it has to be said, a pretty substandard job um, in terms of what Red Bull are looking for. They obviously had the conundrum of trying to replace Daniel Ricciardo, uh, a very high performer in that second Red Bull car, and they hoped that one of their junior drivers could do that. So if we look at Verstappen versus Gasly in the first half of 2019, um, 12 races each. Verstappen beat him on po on wins, 2-0. to zero. Podiums, 5-0. to zero. Um, And on points, 181-55. to 55. That is an extraordinary gap for two drivers who are supposedly 
in the same team trying to help construct his points. If we look into it a little bit further, um, I did some research on the uh, average qualifying gap between the drivers. Uh, Verstappen, on average, was 0.591 seconds quicker than than Gasly in qualifying. That's a whole six tenths. Um, and that is that is solely I looked at uh, at the twelve qualifying sessions. I excluded ones where either driver had a a possible technical fault or something. For example, in Azerbaijan, Gasly went out in Q two with an engine problem. Um, I also excluded the time. The only time that Gasly had qualified Verstappen was when uh, Verstappen was caught out by a, a red flag with thirty seconds left in Canada in Q two. So if I took out all the possible anomalies, and that left uh, a head-to-head of eight nil against Gasly's name in Verstappen's favour. Uh, Gasly never qualified higher than fourth. If we compare that to Alex Albon, so he, Alex Albon came in after the Hungarian Grand Prix last year has done 12 races of Verstappen's teammate. Again, in terms of the stats, has not done too favourably. Has zero wins to Verstappen's one. Verstappen has seven podiums, whilst Albon has yet to get on the podium. In terms of points, though, the gap is a lot smaller. Verstappen has got 133 points in those 12 races, whilst Alex Albon has vastly improved on Pierre Gasly. 98 points in total, so definitely stacks up better. In terms of the qualifying, again, I took out sessions where there could be possible anomalies. Uh, some examples including in Albon's first race in Belgium where he took an engine penalty, so did not participate in qualifying. And also I excluded examples where they both didn't do their fastest lap in the same session. So, for example, this year in Hungary where Albon was out in Q2, I did not include that one. And if I took all those out, that came up with Albon being 0.427 seconds down on Verstappen. So... A much like quite a bit of a smaller gap, but again, the head to head was not favorable. He was seven nil down, so um, that shows Verstappen's superiority over both uh, Albon and Gasly. Now, if you're trying to if Red Bull were trying to sort out the conundrum in terms of who to put in that second car, um, I've got a few possible helping points for them. I think whilst the gap between Gasly and Albon is in terms of quality, in terms of raw pace, qualifying speed it's not too far off. Both of them are lagging behind Verstappen, struggling to uh, keep up with his pace. The only time where either of them got within four-tenths of Verstappen in qualifying was in Japan last year, where Albon happened to make the exact same times, the thousandth of a second, as Verstappen. That's the only time either of them have ever got close to him. Um, But in terms of trying to pick between the two, um, I would say that the main factor in Alex Albon's favour is that the fact that he can come through the field with a much higher success rate as opposed to Pierre Gasly. I picked out three examples for both drivers. Pierre Gasly, on like three occasions where he has failed to really make an impact coming from the back of the field. The first two races he did for Red Bull in Australia in 2019, where he qualified in 17th, uh, blamed um, exaggerated track evolution for his going out in Q1. Interesting excuse. Um, they started in 17th only got up to 11th at the end really, I know it's a difficult track Melbourne to overtake but in terms of coming through the field it's not really something he did successfully um, the very next race in Bahrain he started a bit higher up in 13th um, out-qualified, outqualified by Albon interestingly who was in the Toro Rosso at the time um, only came up to 8th place in the end so again not really enough of a gain for that second driver in the Red Bull when they're looking to make a desirable impact in the Constructors' Championship. Um, another one which I picked out uh, was in Germany last year, that absolutely crazy race where drivers went up and down the field, rain, crashes, everything you'd want in a Formula 1 race. 
Uh, Gasly lost out in the pit stops early on, dropped to 17th, having qualified his best qualifying in the Red Bull, which was 4th. But then his his progress through the field was slow, did not really get that high, only managed to get into the top 10 in the last few laps before then crashing, ironically, into the back of Albon um, and losing what would have been 7th place. But on a day when the Ferrari of Leclerc crashed out, the Mercedes of Hamilton was having a shocker, the Mercedes of Bottas crashed out, you would expect Gasly to come on the podium that day, but he came absolutely nowhere near it. If we look at Alex Albon's success rate coming through the field, it's much higher and probably the reason why Red Bull would probably lean towards him. Um, in his third Formula 1 race in China, he crashed out in qualifying, um, dust, uh, dusted himself down, despite starting from the pit lane, came through to finish 10th, very admirable for a, a Formula 1 driver in just his third race. Um, his first race for Red Bull in Belgium in 2019, started 17th because of the aforementioned engine change. Came, started off quite slowly, but came through the field, managed to take fifth with a daring last lap pass on Sergio Perez over the grass on the Kemmel Strait. And another example I picked out was from the uh, US Grand Prix at Austin, Texas. Started ninth, or sorry, started in sixth place, dropped down to nineteenth after a first lap collision with Carlos Sainz. Uh, recovered to finish fifth, which you got to say, based on previous evidence, is not something Gasly would necessarily be able to do because his track record for coming through the field is quite a poor one. Um, if you're looking at other factor, one other factor I picked out, maybe why uh, Albon will continue to get that seat, is the amount of times he's finished behind a non-top six car. So the amount of times he's finished behind something other than a Ferrari or a Mercedes or his teammate. Gasly did this on numerous occasions. Um, just to pick out a couple of other examples, in the French Grand Prix last year, he finished in 10th behind two McLarens, an Alfa Romeo and a Renault. Um, had a very poor race, was only in, only uh, finished in 10th place. Um, the most notable example, I think one which we has been picked out before, but the fact he, in Austria, his teammate Verstappen started on the front row, had a shocker of a start. At the end of lap one, uh, Gasly was 7th, Verstappen was 8th. They were separated by a couple of tenths. On lap 71 at the end of the race, Verstappen was 1st, Gasly was still 7th, one lap behind. So, And in that, he managed to finish behind McLaren as well in that race showing very poor pace. It has to be concluded that Albon is a better teammate for Verstappen, even if he isn't perhaps the best case scenario, because his pace is still seen to be lacking. However, he he has been seen to come through the field more easily than Gasly. Um, He has brought home those sort of, whilst Verstappen can be be relied upon to uh, to challenge for first and second places um, on a more regular basis, and whilst Albon has had a couple of uh, chances at podiums, but has unfortunately had them taken away from him, Albon is still has proven himself more capable of picking up those, whilst there may be sort of more consolation finishes, those fourths, fifths, sixes, which can prove to be important points for Red Bull and will probably prove to be important points again this year, more in the battle against Racing Point than in the battle against Ferrari. But um, yeah, it has to be said that Albon, in his time, whilst his pace has been seen to be lacking, has proved more adept at being better in the Red Bull car, as opposed to Gasly, who seems more at home at Toro Rosso, as proven by his podium in Brazil uh, at the end of last year, and his general better performance against uh, Daniel Kvyat in the second Toro Rosso, now Alpha Tauri. But um, yeah, it has to be said that whilst it's not a desirable situation for Red Bull to have, that their second driver is quite slow on both cases, um, based on raw pace and also other factors that have been I've mentioned. Alex Albon should probably keep the seat 
for now, as long as he manages to keep up the okay levels of performances that he has put out so far. What about Kvyat? Does Kvyat deserve it though? I could have gone into Kvyat, but all I found from my thing on Kvyat was that yeah, he's fucking slow. Um, basically, <laughs> <laughs> the head is it. It's weird actually because so uh, Gasly, when he's up against Kvyat, absolutely smashes him, and Albon was quite level with Kvyat, but then Albon's timing against Kvyat was his first 12 races in the sport, whilst Gasly's come back in and kind of steamrolled him. But yeah, that was one other thing I found. I think it's disappointing expected that they're not putting all their eggs into the Albon basket. I mean, he has got a fifth place, he has got a fourth place this season from three races. He probably or perhaps would have gone on to get that podium if there hadn't been that collision with Hamilton in Austria. As you've rigorously detailed there, Angus, he's far superior to Gasly and you know feel free anyone to go and chuck some names at me but I just failed to see who Red Bull could get in as their second driver who would play fiddle to the Max Verstappen band because let me be clear as with all the top three teams they have their first driver and they have their second driver and I think the only way that Red Bull are going to be sort of great again so to speak is if they have a team built around Verstappen and are maximising his potential, meaning there's not going to be a civil war going on uh, in that constructors. Well, you know, there is a a certain four-time world champion without a drive next year, Tom. And, <clears throat> and do you think Vettel could could do it? Do you think? I mean, I I don't know if Red Bull will even have him back. Do you th- do you think Vettel would do well back in Red Bull? They were the ones that made him four-time world champion. I mean, there's no doubt he's a very talented driver, but I do get the impression that, A, he causes quite a lot of trouble when he's not undisputedly number one. I think he's quite got quite a sort of fiery personality on track. I think Verstappen would match that, and that would result in probably more trouble than it was worth. And I mean, again, he's, he's 33 years old, um, and I think you're probably now putting him in the sort of Kimi Raikkonen bucket of... You know, he's he's great to have for a smaller team you want to build up and sort of get the box office figure in there. But if you're going forward, looking to the future and wanting to dominate the sport again, I'd say stick with the youth. So talking of a team or constructors who are not looking to the future, but who are looking to the past, look no further than Renault. It's recently been confirmed that Fernando Alonso, the 38-year-old Spaniard and two-time champion of the world, will be returning for his third stint at the team after signing a two-year contract. He's been away from the sport for three years and will replace Daniel Ricciardo, who's departing, to go to McLaren. And we believe we'll be pairing up with a young Esteban Ocon for the 2021 season. Liv, you've been having a closer look at this move and this breaking news. What are your thoughts on these developments? So yeah, I have been having a look at that and I thought obviously we know the news, we know Alonso's back, but I think it's important just to take a bit of a step back and look at the context of why there's a seat available for him this year and is it to do with Renault's performance and is that why they've got him back in? Um, so if we just sort of take a little rewind, a bit of a story time back to 2018, um, over at Red Bull, you've got Daniel Ricciardo um, with Max Verstappen, who we've been discussing. And although Daniel Ricciardo has had some brilliant, absolutely brilliant times at Red Bull, he at this time was quite unhappy. They were um, There was quite a lot of conflict between the drivers and he just wasn't achieving what he wanted to achieve. And we don't know really know quite what was going on with Daniel Ricciardo and what um, sort of made him make the decision that he did. And not even Christian Horner or, or anyone in the team was completely un- in understanding of why that happened. But Daniel Ricciardo 
decided um, to leave the team that he had achieved seven wins with. Um, it was, yeah, it was a surprise to everyone. So he expressed interest in Renault, who were discussing, and also McLaren, and, and, and discussed with both of those teams. Renault, who obviously wanted him, um, why wouldn't you? He's a, you know, he's a definite point where he's a definite point achiever he's a definite race winner podium getter he's someone that you want so to, in order to get in order to get Daniel Ricciardo um Renault actually booted out Carlos Sainz which I love the irony of it now considering Sainz <laughs> went on to McLaren did a brilliant job and is now up to be a Ferrari driver hmm. in the following season but anyway back in 2018 um Daniel chose to go with Renault. Um, he really liked the, the the vibe. I'm sure he said vibe, but that sounds like something he would say of the place and the <laughs> and the way that he was received by the team. And so he chose Renault over McLaren. However, the 2019 season began quite poorly for Renault, and it seems perhaps this decision was playing a little on his mind. The fact he had chosen the French team over McLaren um, in the first in 2019 season, Renault finished fifth in the construction championship behind midfield rivals. Um, Taking a look at just some of the issues they had that year, the list is, is quite extensive. And you can see uh, um, why Ricardo was beginning yet again to get uh, frustrated. Um, there was plenty of issues with the car. In the first race of 2019, he retired for due to car issues. In the in Bahrain Grand Prix, he came 18th due to power loss. In Azerbaijan, he retired due to a collision. In Germany, he retired due to exhaust pr problems. And in Russia, he retired due to handling issues. So that's a lot of retirements for an experienced driver. And yes, some of those may have been something he had done, for example, the collision. But it's clear there that the car was not was not performing to how he, how he would have expected. So that sort of gives you a little bit of context on why when it then came to the beginning of 2020 season that was then delayed. So it, even, And so even before the season had begun, Daniel Ricciardo had made a decision based on the previous year that he would not want to stay past the end of the 2020 season. Um, he was now due to be racing with Ocon. And again, a reminder of some younger talent in on the F1 grid. Um, he Obviously, he's been in F1 before, but not for long. And quite a, quite a difference from Ricciardo and Hulkenberg who had been in the team before. Um, so, as I said, he made the decision to move... Um, to McLaren. This was because, as I mentioned a minute ago, Sainz, who he had replaced at Renault, who had been kicked out for him at Renault, then went on, went on to McLaren, performed excellently, and was now off to Ferrari, leaving a space at McLaren, perhaps the team that Ricardo wanted to go to all along. Um, this uh, difficulties for Renault has, you know, not necessarily continued, as maybe that's a bit of a harsh saying, but they're, they're struggling again this year. Four points per race so far this year compared to the total of 41 for McLaren where Ricardo is off to. So there's a seat left. There's a seat empty at Renault. Who goes there? There was plenty of discussion. There was Vettel, there was Hulkenberg, there was Alonso and there was obviously, of course, the academy drivers that we are coming on to discuss, that young talent that everyone loves in F1 at the moment. They really need someone to pull them out of this slump that they're in. There was plenty of hints on Twitter as they were about to announce him. There was uh, Renault were posting pictures of Alonso back in the day when he'd won the championship for them. Um, and people were starting to speculate. And before you know it, Alonso was announced. So you can completely understand why. As you mentioned, Tom, he's won two championships for Renault. He won the, both the Drivers and the Constructors Championships in 2005 and 2006. He's won 32 F1 races. This makes him the sixth ever, uh, the sixth highest uh, race winner um, in history 
Um, he also held the record of youngest pole position sitter and race winner, but obviously this was then replaced by the likes of Vettel, Leclerc and Verstappen. Um, but, you know, a very, very solid driver. You can understand why you'd want him. Not only is he experienced, but he's not just experienced in finishing midfield. He's experienced in finishing very high up in the points, if not winning. Um, however, he is older now. Um, he's 38 years old. We were discuss- discussing how Vettel may be too old and he's only 33, I think he said. So 38 is is getting up there. Um, he's had almost three years out. And at the end of 2018, before he left um, Formula One for for his hiatus, um, as it is now, he was finishing only just really in the top 10 and often out of the points. So is this a driver that's really lost his, his um, you know, has had his excitement that he had back in the early 2000s? Personally, and I think I'm not alone in thinking this, they should really be looking towards the future. Um, and perhaps it's maybe given the seat to one of the stars of the future and the stars of their driver academy. Um, when I have a well-funded driver academy and they should be using it, they have stars such as um, Zoo, they, who has had three strong seasons in Formula 3 and then joined Formula 2 and achieved the highest finishing rookie result of the season. He's now the test driver for Renault and represented them in the virtual Grand Prix during lockdown. You have Christian Lungard. In 2019, he took part in Formula 3, but was actually offered some races in Formula 2 because he was doing so well. Back a bit, he won two Formula 4 races in his first ever season in a single-seater car, and he has also been racing for them in the virtual Grand Prix. So these are two brilliant talents, and there's many, many, many more in that academy. What is the point, some might say, of having an academy of these fresh, exciting talents if you don't use them? I feel that... Although I'm not wholly in favour of Alonso getting this seat insofar that he's been out of the sport for three years, as I've said, is 38 years old, only too shy of Kimi Raikkonen, who I believe is a falling star uh, from the sports. But I I do wonder whether Renault were in sort of survival mode. They're in, they're in a panic. They're in the the thought process of we need to get someone in who could win the race by themselves, so to speak. Someone who can pull the car up and make it better than it actually is. We've seen Daniel Cardo's leaving. We've They've spent so much money on him. Their other driver is, is Esteban Ocon. We know he has strong links to the Mercedes Academy. There is now a real danger, I think, that Ocon could just go at the end of one season and they'd then be left with their academy. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, the, the examples you mentioned, they seem like, you know, well, uh, well-versed and um, performing drivers. However, when you've got someone with, no offence to the fellow, but Sergei Sorokin as one of your test drivers and by definition, sort of the heir to the throne or secondary, I don't think a driver like him or another rookie alongside him uh, is really going to perform. So they need someone, they need a, a sort of box office figure, I think, to really pull them up and give them a fighting chance. Alonso coming back to Renault is a really interesting topic, and I believe there are two sides to the to these arguments. There is, there's those who believe that Alonso is going to steer them in the right direction, and there are those who believe that Alonso is just, as you say, Tom, a, a falling star, and he's just coming back because he misses his seat and he retired too early. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen, for example, is a good example of a driver who just wants to have a little bit more fun in Formula 1 without the pressure. I feel like Alonso wants that a little bit. Maybe he's jealous of of Raikkonen. When when it comes to the first one of those arguments, um, that Alonso is this great driver that's going to steer them in the right direction, there is an argument there 
that great world champion drivers have the ability to help a team in a way that young talent can't. And that's because they can help set up the car and they can help extract all the performance out of it. Someone like Lewis Hamilton, who very famously in Istanbul in 2006 set his um, F2 car up differently to everyone else on the grid, spun it um, so he was last. And then because he knew where that limit of the car was, he then came up into second place. And that talent there to set up a car comes from experience and comes from being a naturally very gifted driver and having a real understanding of cars. And perhaps Renault believe that Alonso can come back into the team and push Renault in the right direction. But I do think there is value in having someone who knows what a a winning Renault feels like perhaps and can help develop the team just because they know what really fast cars should be set up like and I do hope it pays off for Renault because they've got a lot of money riding on this at a time when Renault is having to battle financially as well. On the flip side of that though I don't particularly like it when teams bring in a driver who retired because of the fame because of the sponsorship when they have so many other talented drivers waiting in the wings. And so I don't actually necessarily agree with what Renault have done, but I can appreciate why they've done it. And who knows if it's going to pay off. Yeah, so in terms of Alonso coming back, I there is an argument to be made that he is stunting the progress of some young drivers. Uh, Liv mentioned about Zhu uh, and Lundgaard, uh, the Renault junior drivers, but I've got to be honest, I just love the fact that Alonso's coming back. I love the fact that he's decided to give it another crack. Um, I loved it back in 2010 when Michael Schumacher decided to come back at the ripe old age of 41 and give Formula 1 another crack. I, I, at that time, I remember I hadn't seen Schumacher actually race because I started watching Formula 1 just after he retired. But the same, even with Alonso um, having been even though i've seen him race many times uh, across the time i've been watching formula one i still love the fact that he's coming back after a couple of years out i believe whilst whilst it may not be that the renault car will uh be the fastest or be one that may be challenging for podiums or race wins or championships and also the f- the fact that by the time alonso is his for his sort of his if if his like pace is going to start declining then renault um, may not be near the top and he may have to call it a day. I still think that the drama he has to Formula One, whether it's through his racecraft, his bickering with uh, different people, whether it's teammates or team personnel, um, you think of his humorous radio messages, etc. I definitely think he, he brings a certain X factor to the grid. And I think I think it's going to be very interesting to see him, we see we t- we mentioned maybe sometimes um, Lewis Hamilton how he's now one of the elder statesmen. He's up against a lot of younger drivers such as Leclerc, Verstappen, etc. And it's fascinating to see how he will go up against goes up against them. I think it's going to be the same with uh, with Alonso. It'll be fascinating to see it, primarily him going up against a young teammate in Esteban Ocon who still has a lot to prove in Formula One. You could argue. Yeah, as much as it is a shame that the young drivers maybe are going to be missing out, I think it's brilliant that Alonso is coming back. 
And so ends this episode of F1 in Review. Thank you very much to Tristan, Angus and Liv for all their help and expertise in this episode. We've got through a lot of varied discussion and content in this episode today. First of all, we started off with the tightly contested battle for the wooden spoon between Haas, Alfa Romeo and Williams. Then went on to the penalties of the Hungarian Grand Prix and those that were not given, more interestingly. We then went on to the civil war which could erupt in uh, Red Bull and AlphaTauri between Gasly and Albon. Should Albon, re- should Albon be replaced or should Gasly take his seat? That's another talking point. And finally, Fernando Alonso, the 38-year-old, is returning to the sport whether we like it or not. He'll be racing for Renault for the third time and it'll be very interesting to see whether or not this gamble yet again by the French team will pay off or will not. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode.